a few hands, some laughter. I think laughter is our only defense now at this point. Um, before I dive into our text this morning, uh, I just want to take a few minutes to speak about what has been going on over the last week in this country. Um, this is not going to be me supporting a certain candidate. So if you like a certain candidate and you think Pastor Kevin's getting ready to get up here and do that, uh, you're at the wrong church. Um, but I just want to share something with you that the Lord shared with me yesterday morning when I was um, reading in the Psalms. And I think it's I, I think the Lord gave it to me to share with you guys this morning. And I, and I, I want to give a charge to us as a church um, because I think at least in my lifetime, and again, I'm only 34, so what do I know? But this is the most um, angry and divisive I've seen our culture. It's the most angry and divisive I've seen us as um, just human beings, really, in a lot of ways. And, and, and it grieves me. Um, it grieves me to see that even inside of the church, um, to, to see brothers and sisters so angry and divided over, um, over men and women and, and political views. And I'm not saying these things don't matter. Don't, don't hear me. You know, if you're here this morning and you're, you're very political and you care about these things, I, I'm not saying that they don't matter. Uh, but I, I do think God's word tries to recalibrate us at times. And, and I was in the Psalms yesterday. Um, I read this and this first, this first verse in Psalm 97 just jumped out to me. It says, the Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Church, that is, that is still true, right? God has not left the throne room because your candidate won or lost this past week. God is still reigning. He is still sovereign. He is still ruling. He is still in charge. Let's rejoice. And as I was processing and thinking through that, I was like, when I see so much um, anger and, and division and arguing, I was like, what, what does God require of us? What does God want of us? Well, he wants us first and foremost to recognize this. Right? He has not abdicated his throne. He, he is still ruling and reigning. And that is why we gather this morning to worship a God who is ruling and reigning, not over a nation, not over a state, not over a city, but over the universe. And as we worship and rejoice in him, the sovereign creator of all. I think this is what God would ask of us, right? As a church, what can we do moving forward? I think Jesus shares it beautifully in Matthew chapter five, verse nine, where he says this, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Church, if you wanna know what, what does God want us to be, what does, what does God want his church to be in a, in a divisive and broken climate, he wants us to be peacemakers. I would encourage you, seek out what that means. Ask God to help you to be that. Right? If you guys remember a couple months ago when I was preaching in, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, you'll remember Right? Whether you're candidate or won this past week, God has a requirement of you that, that you would pray for your leader. That you would pray for your leader no matter who that leader is. And that you would want to see his or her success. And to know God and know him fully. 
Right? That is what God requires and asks of us. And so here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna take a moment. I would, I'm gonna ask that you would pray with me. And I'm gonna ask that God would give us this realization and that the, the group of 100 plus of us here this morning, right, we would be faithful to that mission that we would be faithful to that mission to first and foremost find our hope and peace in God as our Lord and King because he reigns. And that, that God would empower us and equip us to be peacemakers in the world around us, pointing people to Jesus. And that, that we would commit as a church to praying for our leaders, no matter who that is. Will you bow your head and pray with me? Lord, you know how much I hate politics. Lord, you know how much I hate the divisiveness going on around us. And God, yet you care. And so Lord, I pray for us. I pray for us as a people. I pray for us as your people. Lord, that first and foremost, Lord, that we would not lose sight of the reality that you are ruling and reigning and that we can worship and rejoice and be glad that the world is not falling apart because you are in control. And Lord, as we worship you and as we gather this morning to hear your word and to sing songs and rejoice and find our hope and our identity in you, Lord, will you, Holy Spirit, empower us and encourage us to be peacemakers in a place where there are very few, to be a place that seeks to be reasonable, measured, slow to speak, slow to anger, quick to extend love, quick to extend grace, and to share the joy and hope that resides within us, not because of a certain political party or a certain piece of legislation, but because our hope is found in Jesus Christ. And it is finished. And Lord, as we seek to be peacemakers, Lord, will you help us to remember when we're frustrated with what we see or when we're downtrodden or when we're angry or disappointed because you are sovereign, because you are ruling, to go to our knees and pray, to ask you to be the one that would move so that we might be obedient and pursue godliness in all that we do. Jesus, I love you. I thank you for the men and women who are here this morning and the privilege that it is to pastor and shepherd and lead them. Lord, will you make us a church that is a city on a hill, a light to the world around us that seeks to make much of Jesus. And I ask this all in your precious name. Amen. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We're going to be finishing up that chapter uh, this morning. Uh, and if you uh, haven't already uh, gotten one of the scripture journals that we're giving out for free, uh, you can just raise your hand and we'll give one out to you. That's our gift to you. We love the word of God here and we want you to have access to that. And we would just ask that you would bring that back with you, take any notes that you may want. And if you're a part of a gospel community, to bring that with you to gospel community. Uh, but we've been studying 1 Timothy for several uh, months now. And, and what we've seen is uh, Paul is writing this letter to Timothy. Uh, and Timothy is stationed at a church in Ephesus, which is a church that Paul had planted. Uh, you can read about that in around Acts chapter 16 through Acts chapter 18. 
And, and Paul stayed there for a number of years and has now left and moved on and he's gone to plant more churches and he's doing more work. And, and he's left Timothy, this young man who he had personally trained and discipled to pastor and lead the church that he had planted there in Ephesus. And, and he's writing this letter to Timothy to uh, encourage him to, to lead this church with courage, with, with conviction, and with devotion uh, to God and to God's word. And, and so, you know, Timothy is this young guy who questions uh, his, leadership, his own leadership, his own ability to lead this church. And so Timothy's writing uh, this letter to him to encourage him, hey, you can do this. I know this is a young church. I know that you're a young leader, but you can do this. God has empowered you to be able to do this. And what we've seen as we've studied this letter consistently uh, over the last several months is there, there tends to be this consistent theme that keeps coming up as we read this letter. And, and that's this idea of leadership and, and what God wants of leadership inside of his church. Because leadership matters to God, especially inside of the church. And what we saw back in chapter 1 that, that Paul's charge to Timothy was that, uh, that Timothy would remove ungodly leaders who had strayed from the word of God. And he says to Timothy, hey, Timothy, doctrine matters. It's important. We care. And these leaders that are leading people astray from God's word, get rid of them. Do not associate with them, remove them. And one of the things I said as I was preaching to that verse is, is one of our commitments here at Aletheia Church is that we'll be committed to the word of God. And if any of our leaders stray from that commitment, you have permission to pitch a fit and remove us. That God cares deeply about this. And then we saw in chapter three that not only does God care about commitment to his word and that his leaders would be committed to that word, but God also cares about their character. And, and chapter three of, of 1 Timothy lays out the qualifications for leaders, both as elders and as deacons. And that God, care, God cares about the character of the men and women who lead our church. And that we should take careful attention in making sure that our leaders are in step with God and his word in these areas. And so when we get to chapter 5, here the second half of chapter 5, what we see is that Paul is going to encourage Timothy one more time about leaders. And this time he's going to get a little bit more practical. Right? He's talked about this need to care about God's word and stay true to it. He's talked about the, the character and competencies that uh, leaders must have. And then he's going to get practical and he's going to talk about how the church is called to treat their leaders and how the church should install those leaders once they have been called. And Paul's encouragement to Timothy in these verses is, is, is going to be the same that it's been throughout this entire letter. Be strong, right? be courageous, and be patient. Uh, what we're going to see this morning is three principles that Paul is going to share with Timothy on how to treat and install the leaders inside of this church at Ephesus. And it's things that we can learn as a church, both here locally, what we're doing, but no matter where you may be for the rest of your life, when you are a committed member of God's church, how you should approach the subject of leadership and how the church that you are a part of should approach the subject of leadership. And so here's what we're going to see this morning, three things. Right, God calls us to honor our leaders. Number two, that the church is responsible to hold leaders accountable. And number three, that patience and wisdom must prevail in choosing and installing 
leaders. So let's take a look at this kind of this first principle that that Timothy has laid out for him by Paul uh, over in verse 17 of 1 Timothy chapter 5, honoring your leaders. It says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. So last week I mentioned uh, the beauty of expository preaching, right? Where we teach through entire books of the Bible. And one of the reasons why I said I love it so much is that it gives us this opportunity, right? To tackle subjects and issues that we probably wouldn't normally tackle because God's word addresses them. And so it forces us as a church to study these things out and and work through them. Another reason why I love expository Bible preaching is that I get to talk about myself and not feel guilty or self-serving for doing so which is exactly what I'm going to do this morning, right? When, when God's word says here in verse 17 that we are, are called to honor, right, the, the, the elders who rule well, that they should be considered worthy of double honor, right? I'm partially talking about myself here, right? And that there would be this tendency, at least for me, to, to feel a little guilty, right, saying that to everybody because, well, you know, Kevin, you know, seems pretty full of himself to be saying this. So it's like, no, this is just what God's word says, Right. And so it, it protects me even from my own right proclivities to maybe not dive into something because I might be worried what you would think of me. Right. And so what God's word is talking about here, right, is he says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. Now that word rule is this Greek word proistemi. And, and the reason I share that with you is it is is what the the word means when we hear the word rule. In English and especially in American context, we tend to not like that word very much. Yeah, I have a a brother-in-law. He's British. Uh, He lives right in London, not far from uh, Big Ben. And one of the first times that he ever came over here to visit us, it was a fascinating clash of cultures because one of the first questions he asked me, he's like, why do Americans love guns so much? I was like, because we hated your king. That's why, right? And and so I just, like, the, the, the culture difference right, was massive, right? And so as Americans, when we hear the word rule, right, all of us, we run to, hmm, I'm an American. I don't, I don't like that word, right? And so when we read that then in scripture, right, we hear, we hear the word rule and we're automatically, right, whether you realize it or not, right, your, your alarm bells are going off. It's like, no one rules over me, right? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? Well, the word in the Greek means this, right? It means to preside over or to protect or to guard or to care for, right? So when when God says, hey, there are leaders inside of the church that I have called and placed over you, they're not lording it over you the way a, a, a totalitarian king would, right? The, the way that a tyrant king would, would force uh, his, his subjects into, into subjection underneath of him, Right, what God is saying is, is, is the standard of leadership is one that is presiding over, overseeing, caring for, guarding. That, that the role of leaders inside of the church is one of care for the people inside the church, not using them. And so as, as Timothy right, is, is reading this letter from Paul, right, Paul is using a very specific word to remind him, hey, hey you as a leader, Your entire job is to care for the church, to guard them, to protect them, to care for them. Because 
your leadership, your pastoral position inside the church of Ephesus is not one of authoritarian dictatorship, but of overseeing Jesus' bride and managing it well. And then his words here are for the church, right? The people in Ephesus, right? The people that Timothy is leading. He says, let the elders who rule well, and there's a clause there, right? Well, be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. All right, so what does it mean for us to show leaders who preach and teach double honor? What, is, what does Paul mean by that? Because it's not a phrase that we probably use a whole lot. You've probably said, hey, you should honor your teacher, or you should honor your parents, or you should honor right, your boss, right? But we've probably never said, hey, you should show double honor to your parents. You should show double honor to your boss, right? So here, here is what Paul means by that, right? The word honor in, in the Greek that he uses here holds this idea of value, that it actually carries value with it. And so here's what he's saying. He's saying, hey, there's two ways that, that you are called as the church, to show honor to the leaders who God has placed over you, right? The first would be, right, the common everyday uh, idea of honor that we would think about, right? This idea of, of showing respect and appreciation for the work that they're doing, you know, using kind words, thanking them, being appreciative of, of their service and the things that they might do for you and for the church, the body of Christ. But the other one is this, honor through paying them for their work and their service to the church, right? And here's how I know this, right? Because Paul's saying, hey, honor them with words of encouragement, but also honor them with a salary. And you're like, whoa, Kevin, you're just trying to get paid, right? Here's how I know this is what is being shared here, right? Look at what he says in verse 18. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages, Right? Paul's quoting from uh, the Old Testament law there. He's quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 25, verse 14, right? Where he says, do not, right? You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, right? And what, what God was teaching, right? The, the, the people of Israel there is, hey, when, when an ox is working in your field and it's plowing and it's doing all this work, right? Allow it to eat while it works, if it bends over and eats some of the food that drops while it's plowing the field or it's threshing or whatever it may do, allow the ox to eat. Don't muzzle it, right? That's cruel and unusual punishment to that ox to not allow it to eat while it's working in your field, right? And in the same way, Paul is tying this idea of the work of a leader or a pastor inside the church that they should be compensated for that work the same way that the ox is being compensated for the work that it is doing in that field. Paul addresses this same issue to, to the church at Corinth. If you turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 with me, look at what he says to the Corinthian church. And I always love, you know, this letter. I mean, you want to talk about a church that had some wild stuff going on. Just go read 1 Corinthians. It's great. But starting in verse 9, look at what he says. For it is written in the law of Moses, right? And he quotes the same verse. You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Right? So you see what, what, what Paul's trying to point out to them? You know, God's told you to care for, for an ox. Do you think he's really that concerned about the ox? I mean, he is, but he's more so trying to teach you a principle or an idea that you're supposed to follow. 
He says, does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher should thresh in the hope of what? Sharing in the crop. He's like, look, a farmer farms both to create food, but also so that he may have a, a, a stake in what he's actually working towards so he might be able to eat and feed his family. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. All right, so here's what was going on in Corinth. All right, Paul went to Corinth, planted this church. He was a tent maker while he was there, and so he did not take a salary from the church. And then when he leaves, they, a new pastor was called and raised up inside that church. And guess what? They didn't want to pay him. Like, dude, Paul worked for free. You, you, you should be just like Paul. Right? You, should, you should lovingly work pastor, shepherd, lead, preach, teach in this church and not receive any money. And Paul's point to them is like, look, God has designed from the, from the outset that those that do work be compensated for that work. Whether it's an ox in the field or a Levitical priest who takes care of the temple and receives from the offerings as they work out that role inside of the temple and the tabernacle, that those that work should be compensated for their work. And even though Paul, right, he's like, even though I did not take a salary while I worked for you, that does not mean that you should not be compensating your pastor. That you should show double honor to those who lead well because God expects it of you. And I want to take a second here and just say for, for, for my family, and I'm going to speak on behalf of Pastor Theo back there in the back too. Thank you, Aletheia Church, for your generosity. In all seriousness, th thank you. I know that we're talking about this and how this is a, a guiding principle, but Pastor Theo and myself are both paid for our service and work to this church, and your generosity frees us up to not need a second job. To, to allow us to devote our energy and our time to the church, to be able to provide counseling, discipleship, training, right? And, 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 and I would just say this, we also have other pastors here who are not paid and deserve your thanks. Pastor Derek, Pastor Stephen, Pastor Daniel are unpaid pastors and elders here, right? And, and I would encourage you to thank them for going above and beyond their, their work and, and, and their, their job here in Gainesville that they, that they also give time to this church so that you guys can be together. It, guys, it takes a lot of work to run a church. And the bigger we get, the more work it takes to, to, to keep us on mission together, to keep us focused, to keep us knowing what's going on and in the know. Those types of things take work. And these men give their time outside of their vocational calling to pastor, to shepherd, to lead and oversee this church so that you guys can come here and hear the word of God, worship God together, to be a part of a church family, to receive counseling, to, to receive guidance. Church, we are called 
as Paul shares here with Timothy, we are called to honor pastors and elders, especially those that are worthy. Let's be sure to make this a priority, both here, while you're here, right? But also, some of you guys, you know, I know you're college students, you don't make any money, right? You're eating ramen five nights a week. I get it. One day you will have a job. One day you will be a part of the body of Christ and you'll be able to give in ways that you can't currently give right now. God will honor and he will give you that opportunity. Sandbags weren't enough, guys. That God will give you that opportunity to shepherd the finances that he's given you, but to be generous and show honor towards those that are leading and pastoring. And so God gives this call to honor, but also notice after he shares this, right, in chapter five, right, he gives this call and he says, hey, look, pastors and elders are worthy of double honor. Look at what he says next, right? He gives a call to also not only show honor to those pastors, but then to also call those pastors and elders to accountability for their lives. Right, look at verse 19 with me. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who pers persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Okay, so we see, we see two guiding principles there, right? So the, the first kind of thing that, that Paul lays out for us as the church is, hey, we need to honor elders and pastors. The second principle he's gonna lay out to the church, right, for the, for, the, for the body of Christ, all of us, this is all of us collectively, this is what God is asking of us, is, is to hold leaders responsible, to hold them accountable to the standards that we see and that, that this isn't just a job for a few people in the church, that all of us are called to this responsibility of holding our leaders accountable. And we see two guiding principles inside of that call, that when God says to us, hey, you are called to hold leaders accountable for their actions and what they do. He shares two practical right, pieces of wisdom, right? The first one is this, give a faithful church leader the benefit of the doubt. And when we see some action or when we see someone bring a charge against a faithful leader, be willing to give them the benefit of the doubt to start with. But that in that, the second one would be this, publicly rebuke unrepentant church leaders. Publicly rebuke unrepentant church leaders, right? Look at verse 19 with me and we'll see that first one that we're, we're called to give faithful church leaders the benefit of the doubt. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And so here's, here's what Paul's saying to Timothy. He's like, Timothy, look, if someone has something to say against you or one of the other leaders in the church, right, listen to it, but make sure that there's corroborating evidence. Make sure that there's just not one upset, angry person trying to disrupt the leadership, especially when it comes to a pastor or an elder who had met all of these qualifications that I laid out for you in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Right, if someone meets those qualifications, they have displayed to you that they have trustworthy and faithful character. Don't throw that out on the charge of one person. Now, guys, this should be, in my opinion, common sense. 
to give the benefit of the doubt, especially when someone has been trustworthy over a period of time. I mean, think about it from this perspective. Even our government, right? If you are charged with a crime, right? It is the burden of proof is on the prosecution to prove that you are guilty of that crime. And I, and I, I understand, you know, there are different thoughts and opinions and feelings on criminal justice and the way that our criminal justice system works. But let's just say this. I would prefer to have due process than not have due process. I would prefer someone be able to, to look at me and say, hey, Kevin, you did this. I, I would prefer that if I did not do that to be able to prove that I did not do that and to have that opportunity. Sounds fair. And so if, if we as a people have said, hey, we want it to be a fair process where someone can defend themselves and have the opportunity to de defend themselves, God is saying this in light of the church, even more so, Leaders deserve that opportunity to defend themselves and that, they, that there needs to be corroborating evidence if a charge is to be brought against a pastor or an elder. And there's some practical reasons for this as well. Think about this, guys. If you're a part of a ch church and a pastor or a leader has a, a gross moral failure or does something unworthy of the office of a pastor or an elder, not only does that create issues inside of the church, it's going to cause people to, to be saddened over this pastor that they listened to and followed and, and, and viewed as uh, an authority figure in their life. It's going to cause distrust and it's going to create some weirdness. But the other thing that this does, if you let's say you have a church and you have 12 elders at that church and two of them have a charge brought against them and that they've created issues. Through no fault of their own, the other 10 pastors and elders are automatically looked at with less trust. And so what, what Paul is trying to, to share with Timothy here, and really what he's trying to share with us as a church, is, hey, if we, we need to hold leaders accountable. We need to be ready to uh, remove them if need be. But we also need to make sure that if we're going to do something like that, it, it's worth it. Because it can create disruption and disunity and problems inside of the body of Christ that don't need to be there. Especially if the charge that's being brought about the pastor or elder is found to be false. And if you read the New Testament consistently, what you see is God's desire for his church is that they would be unified. And this will inevitably, if we don't follow this principle that God has laid out for us, create disunity. Now, just as easily as it is to say, hey, there needs to be corroborating evidence for a leader, because we need to give them the benefit of the doubt to protect unity in the church. There are also examples of churches that will protect leaders that do not deserve protecting. And that can create just as much disunity as well. And so what Paul is saying here is, hey, if you have two or three witnesses that are corroborating this evidence, this is what you do next, right? You go to them, right? And you stop them. Now, let me, let me just, let me, let me before I, I move forward, I wanna, I wanna share an example with you. I, 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 I'm familiar with a church a couple years ago, and uh, there was some issues going on inside that church, and the elders of that church, two of them were being accused of some things that were not true about them. And I want to I share with you how if we, if we live out what uh, God is asking of us here in, in, in verse 19, how it can really in many ways sa save a church body. 
there were two or three families inside of this church who were upset with the direction of the church and the way, way things were going. And I think through no, well, through a fault of their own, but also just because of the hurt that they were experiencing, right? What ended up happening inside that church is they, they started getting together. And let me just give you guys maybe a little bit of like life advice. If you hang around people that complain and are upset and angry all the time, guess what's going to happen to you? You're going to be angry and upset and complaining all the time. Right? And so what happened is, is these three families just kept getting together and complaining and, and they were upset about what was going on inside the church. And what ended up happening is I think their opinion of what was going on was not actually as bad as they started believing that it was. And they started gossiping about two of the elders that were inside this church. And, and what ended up happening is one time, right, they were, they were in a community group. And they were with another family in the community group and they started gossiping again about the pastors and the elders. And here's something really, really beautiful that, that happened. One of the men that they were, they were talking to inside that group remembered this passage in 1 Timothy chapter five and he shared this story with me sometime later. And he stopped it and said, I don't, I don't see that character in, in, in our elders. I don't, I don't see that character in them. And, and you need to stop doing that. You need to stop talking about that. You need to go to them and deal with this but you need to stop gossiping. And here's what I'll say. It ended up coming out into the light that these people were gossiping and it got to the elders and it was messy, but it held the church together, right? Because what ended up happening is the evidence proved to not be true. The things that they were saying proved not to be true. And the people that were spreading the the gossip chose to leave the church, but also chose to repent of the lies and gossip that they were spreading. And it allowed the church to stay unified, even though those people chose to leave. Uh, Was this an ideal situation for that church? No, absolutely not. Right? None of us would ever sign and be like, I hope a church has to go through a situation where there's gossip and potential breaking. No. But because people lived out this principle and assumed the best of their leaders and demanded evidence of what was being talked about and would not put up with gossip going on around them, it protected the entire church, including those that were frustrated with the leaders in the church. Guys, this isn't just good for a few people in the church. If we live this out, it's for the good of everyone and more importantly, for the glory of God. Right? An unbelieving world loves nothing more than to see a church in disunity and disarray. And God gives us these guiding principles to protect us from ourselves to protect us from things we tend to do that create disruption. Now, obviously in that particular scenario, there was no evidence of wrongdoing. But what if there is, right? What if there is evidence of wrongdoing, right? Then this is what Timothy is called to do, according to Paul. As for those who persist in sin, so these are leaders where it's been corroborated, they are in open sin, they are in consistent rebellion, this is what you do. Rebuke them in the presence of all so that they may rest and stand in fear. Let me read that again. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that they, so that the rest may stand in fear. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 18 because I want to share something with you that Jesus shares on dealing with conflict inside the church. 
If you don't take anything away from this sermon today, take this away because it'll help a lot of you guys that don't get along with your roommates or your spouses. Starting, starting in verse 15, look at what Jesus says. This is what we're called to do when people are in open, unrepentant sin. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, to, to take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Right? So first of all, let me just say this. Context matters in scripture. So if you or someone you know around you has ever been like, oh, two or three of us are here, so Jesus is here. It's not really what Jesus was saying, right? The Holy Spirit resides inside of you if you're a believer at all times. So believe it or not, if you're by yourself, you can still go into the throne room of heaven and, and convene with Jesus, which by the way is great. As much as I love some of you guys, sometimes I wanna be by myself and still be able to have community with Jesus. So this is good news, not bad news, right? Jesus is saying here, hey, if there is an issue of uh, disunity, an open sin going on inside the church and two or three people are in agreement over what is going on in that situation and they love God and they've sought out this process of reconciliation, you can trust that Jesus is in support of it as well. That's what Jesus is saying. He's not like, hey, like if you have a fight with your roommate and two or three of you get together, I show up in the room and correct the situation. That's not what he's saying. Right? He's like, you can, you can trust that your decision-making process is in line and in step with God's word. Now, back to the point at hand, right? Here's how God tells us to deal with conflict with people. I'll be honest with you, young people here this morning, you suck at this. You do. You wanna know how I know? You'll come up to me after church or you'll contact me on Facebook Messenger because you don't have my phone number, right? Or you'll find a way to get in contact, you'll email me, you'll be like, I'm fighting with my roommate or someone that's in my, my group project and they're not doing any work, and the rest of us all agree that they're not doing anything, or the roommate's not cleaning or doing anything. So I'm like, okay, so have you gone and talked to that person yet? Well, you know, no. So the three or four of you have been complaining about this person together and have done nothing to fix it. Congratulations. Right? You, you have created for yourself an environment where you all agree that you dislike this person, but you've done nothing to fix it. Not a recipe for success. Now, not only that, I'll say this to you. You have violated the first rule that God asks you to do if you have conflict with somebody, right? Notice what he says if you look there again at verse 15, right? If you have a disagreement with a brother, what are you supposed to do first? Go to them with six other people after having talked about it with seven? No, God wants you to go yourself and talk to them. Here's why that matters, guys, just from like a, a practical standpoint. If something bothers you enough to where you will go and talk to somebody when it's bothered you, you are proving that it actually bothers you. If you do not have the conviction 
that you can go to them and talk to them on your own, guess what? It doesn't bother you enough to be worried about it and you need to let it go. Oh, they're not doing the dishes. Tell them. Well, you know, I don't want to create a fight. Then you don't care. Either deal with the conflict or stop complaining about it. Right? By the way, this is not Pastor Kevin being mean to those of you that are introverted and don't want to get your conflict avoidant. Oh, Kevin, you're an Enneagram 8. You love conflict. Yes. I do. And I'm going to be in conflict with you right now until we listen to God's word. Right? God, God is not wrong about this, guys. He's not. Right? If it is bad enough to where you will go and address them one-on-one, explaining your grievance, explaining the way they've sinned against you, then it, then it is worthy of it. If you cannot, in good conscience, go to them one-on-one and deal with it in person, face-to-face, guess what? It's not bad enough. You need to stop complaining and move on with your life. Young people, let me give you just a little, little piece of advice. Text message doesn't count. I know I'm an old dinosaur now, and I don't know how to use TikTok, and I don't know what's going on. Let me just explain something. If you're in conflict with somebody, an important piece of conflict resolution is being able to hear tone of voice, being able to see facial expressions. Do you want want to know why so many people fight on Facebook? Because you don't get any of that. And so if you think a certain way, guess what ends up happening? You assume the worst of them. Have have these conversations in person and see if God's word doesn't prove the beauty of having a brother one back to yourself when you share this. I've I've been in ministry for almost 15 years now, guys. I can just say I've seen a church have to get to the third step one time. And I've seen a lot more than one argument. One time. Right? And so God gives us this plea. He says, hey, first and foremost, go to them yourself and appeal to them. And if they respond, you win, you win a brother. Now what, now, what if you go to the elder and you go to him one-on-one and you go and say, Pastor Kevin, I don't like the way you talk to me. And I, I, I don't think you were in the right. I, 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 I really think you hurt me. Right? And they, he comes to me, he comes to me one-on-one. He sits me down and, and, and is respectful and lays out his grievance against me. And I'm like, dude, nah. And then, and then, and then I'm, I'm harsh and mean to that, to that person again, right? What does God's word tell us to do? He says, go and find two or three witnesses that can corroborate that Pastor Kevin is in open sin and rebellion and go to him again. All right, I, I told Pastor Kevin, I told you, right? This is what I saw in you. You didn't respond. You rejected what I said. You rejected the, the opportunity to repent and respond. I've got two other witnesses here that, that agree with me that the way you're acting is unbecoming not just of a leader, but of a follower of Jesus, right? And what does Jesus say? If he responds, restore him, you've gained a brother, right? If I look at him and say, you know what? You guys are right, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I wanna, I wanna actively and openly repent. What does that look like? What does it look like to show you that I, I'm living in repentance and changing, right? If right, God would grant that repentance, it ends up being beautiful and there's restoration, right? God's word says this. If that doesn't happen, step three. And this is the step that everybody hates, because it is awkward. But it's good. Right? If Pastor Kevin still will not repent, 
one of the other elders in this church is going to get up here on a Sunday morning and tell you exactly what is going on. And then we're going to ask you guys to respond and call me to repentance. Openly rebuking the sin that you would see in my life. And if still I refuse to respond, right, God's word says, treat Kevin as if he's an unbeliever. Doesn't say hate him, right? Doesn't say kick him to the curb. Doesn't say slander him and slander his family. No, it says treat him as you would an unbeliever. Love him, pray for him, call him to repentance, share the gospel with him, tell him how Christ has died for his sin and is available to him if he repents and turns and places his trust in Christ. That's the call of the church, right? And what, what Timothy ends up saying here, right? As he says in verse 20, right? And, and just think about this, guys. The goal of church discipline, because that's what we're talking about this morning. The goal of church discipline is not submission so that everyone does everything perfectly and does the right things. The goal of church discipline is not submission, but restoration. We call everyone, leaders included, to repent of sin and turn and trust in Christ. Right, the, the one time I've ever seen this play out in the church there was a young lady in open and unrepentant rebellion. And one of, one of her friends inside the church went and talked to her about it and she rejected her. So she went and got a few people in their, their community group along with the leader of their community group who all saw the same thing and they went and talked to her again and she rejected them. And so then it went and got some of us as elders and pastors and we went and we and we, and, we, and we talked to her and she rejected her friends. So we notified the church. Hey, this young lady is, is in open rebellion and unrepentant sin. Right, here, here is what she's doing. We, we, we know for sure that's what's happening. She refuses to repent of it. Right, we want you to treat her as if she's an unbeliever, according to Matthew chapter 18. Guess what happened? We didn't hear from her. Months and months went by, we didn't hear from her. And yet, the, especially in particular, the one young lady who went to her to start with, every, every week, I'm praying for you. I love you. Jesus loves you. God loves you so much he sent his son to die for you. Just consistent, 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 month after month after month after month. I would say about 10 months went by, and I was standing outside of our church on a Sunday morning, and the church I was at at the time we would run about 600, 700 people on a Sunday morning. So it was bumping. There's a lot going on. And I look across the parking lot and I see this young lady walking up to the church. And in tears, she walks up to me and another pastor who's standing next to me and says, I'm in sin. I want God's forgiveness. Will you guys take me back at the church? We walked in, we prayed with her. She ended up going and helping plant a church in Tennessee. At one point in time, she's faithfully walking with Jesus today. As that's what happens when we follow God's design. And I'll be honest with you, that nine months was hard. For those of us that knew her and loved her and wanted God's best for her, it was hard. But it was worth it because God's process calls people back to him. And so he says in verse 20, rebuke them in the presence of all so that they so that the rest may stand in fear. And, and there's two things that Paul could be referring to on why we publicly rebuke leaders, 
who are in unrepentant sin. The first one could be just, hey, there were false teachers in this church clearly. And so rebuking false teaching in front of other false teachers will hopefully cause the other false teachers to repent in Ephesus. But on a much greater sense, it refers to the whole church and it communicates this message. Hey, we, we take God's standards seriously here. We love God, we love his word, and we take that standard seriously. And we don't care how much we love the pastor. We don't care how charismatic he is. We don't care what kind of leader he is. If he will not be in step with God's word, then he is not qualified to lead God's people because we care about God's standard more than we care about the gifts or charisma of that particular leader. The goal of the church is the honor of Jesus Christ and to make much of him. And the church's reputation and following after him matters. And that's why God tells us these things matter. Leaders are called to a high standard, but the church is called to hold them to that standard. Right? And so God calls us. He says, look, show honor to elders and pastors who are worthy of that calling. And continue throughout your life to demand that your church has leaders and pastors who are worthy of the calling to which they have been called. That it's not just the responsibility of the leaders to police the leaders. It is the responsibility of all of us as the church, the body of Christ, to hold people to this standard. And then lastly, he's gonna share this with Timothy. When establishing new leaders inside of the church, that patience and wisdom need to prevail in that process. Look at what he says, starting in verse 21. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. I love, I love how Paul finishes up this, this section here, right? First of all, just notice the language he uses there in verse 21, right? He says, hey, look, listen up. Right, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, he's basically saying this. What I'm about to say is really, really important and I'm staking myself saying this in front of God himself, in front of Christ Jesus himself and in front of the angels. Right, I, what I'm about to tell you is super important. We must establish faithful, godly leadership inside of Jesus's church. And we do that patiently and objectively. He says there in verse 21 that we need to be objective in installing leadership inside the church. He says, do not put people in these offices without, with, without, with prejudging them or showing partiality. Right? That word prejudging or prejudice right, means that if you're examining the character of somebody who feels like they are called to the office uh, of an elder, that you are not unfairly judging them. 
that you don't have unfound judgments and things you see because there's something about you don't, them you don't like. You know, oh, you know, they're a Seminole. You know, God can't love Seminoles. He does. You know, that, that, that God wants us to be objective in our evaluations of people. But he also says this, don't show partiality. This means that you don't show undue favor to somebody because you enjoy spending time with them or you like whatever else it is that they need to actually meet the character qualifications laid out in 1 Timothy chapter 3. God calls his church to be objective in the installation of leaders and that that objectivity needs to be centered around character, calling, and competency. Right? Pastor Daniel has shared that and referenced that for us multiple times from the front that leaders are not just called to be competent. They're not just called to have a calling and they're not just called to have character. They're called to have all three. That their character must be in line with the qualifications laid out in scripture, that they must actually be called by God to the work that he, that, uh, of the office of elder, and they must display a consistency, not just in their character, but also in their ability to exercise oversight preaching, teaching, and ruling. Now, this does not mean that we look for perfection in people before we install them as leaders, but it means that God's church should see a pattern in men who aspire to this office. And then lastly, he says in verse 22, that not only do we do this objectively, but we do it patiently. Look at what he says. Let me read it again. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Okay, so when somebody laid hands on somebody uh, in scripture, that was an affirmation uh, of, of acceptance and their leadership, right? It was a, a way of, of visibly demonstrating that this person has been accepted and is being placed in this position. And so what Paul is saying to, to Timothy here is slow down. Don't just place your hands on somebody because you see somebody and you're excited about their potential. Be objective. Take time. Don't lay hands on them. Right? This is something we do here. Right? One, one of the things that has been uh, a blessing to us at, at Aletheia Church, and also for me, it's sometimes right, it's difficult. Right? We do not quickly put people into the office of elder. I would say the process takes on average a minimum of 18 to 24 months. And for those of you guys that are covenant members, you know that before we ever lay hands on somebody in a service, and we're going to be doing that probably in about another month, right? We're going to install two new elders here, right? Unless something drastic changes in the next 30 days, right? But Pastor Daniel and Pastor Theo, right, we'll lay hands on them sometime in July and install them at, uh, as elders here at Aletheia Church. Right? That's been a long process for both of those guys. Because right? we want to take time, we want to examine their character, we want to make sure that they're really called, we want to make sure that they understand what's going to be involved in that calling. And then we go to you guys and we give you guys time to respond and affirm what the elders and pastors of the church see in their lives. And I'll be honest, there are times where there, things have been hard here and it would have been really nice to have two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve other elders to help bear the burden but we would have been in trouble because ultimately we wouldn't have been doing what God asked us to do, which is take our time, 
objectively and patiently before placing people in that role, making sure that they meet the character qualifications, making sure that they're competent in the gifts that are required of that office, and making sure, and sometimes I think this is the most important one, that they are called to that office and position. You'll find people in life all the time that meet the character qualifications and meet the competency, but if they're not called, they will not exercise that office well because they don't have the calling of God on their lives to do it when it gets hard. And so as we take time to examine and see these things, Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, I know you're young. I know it's hard pastoring this church. I know there's false teachers there. I was there, remember? Don't rush to install new leaders because you'll just be right back where you started. Take your time and examine them. And then if you're wondering what the heck is going on in verse 23, let me just say this. I don't really know. I'll just say this. It's really cool that Paul loves Timothy that much that he would address him personally in this letter as he's telling him how to take care of the church. It's like, dude, I know that you're dealing with some anxiety. I know that you've got some stomach issues going on. And I know that this, leading this church is driving you crazy. Drink a little wine. Little wine. And then he says this, right? Finishing up in verse 24 and 25. We take our time installing leaders because sometimes sinful patterns are obvious. Right? Sometimes you can meet somebody and like within, you know, sometimes I meet some of you guys and we sit down for coffee or lunch or I'm talking to you and it's abundantly clear, hey, God is doing a bunch of things in their life right now. <laughs> there's a bunch of sinful tendencies and God's just rooting those out one by one. And I can just see it. And sometimes people will come in and like you meet them and you're like, man, like he or she really has their act together. And like, they really love God. And it's really great. Right. And as you're spending time with them and you spend more time with them, then you're like, wait a minute, they're really sinful. Yes. And you want to allow time for those sinful tendencies and patterns to crop up because you want to make sure that that will not then disqualify them. And here's the other thing about taking your time. Sometimes you see people and you're like, man, like that person is struggling. Right, let me just say this. Like when I first came to Christ and was attending my church, if someone had sat down and been like, could Kevin maybe be a pastor one day and, and lead a church and plant a church and do all these things? If you had reserved your judgment for within those first 60 days of meeting me, you'd be like, I just hope that dude can like get a job and like go to class, you know, and, and tie his shoes in the morning. Like that was the level of, lack of self-control and self-destructive streaks that I had going on in my life, that if someone were to examine me at that point in time and, and, and rush to a judgment, they'd have been like, man, dude, you're struggling, man. And yet, as time has moved on in my life and as God has matured me and as God has called me to repentance, and as I have matured, right, good work started showing up. Evidence of the faith that was in me started showing up. Consistency started showing up. And when, and, when, and when I strayed from that, right, I had lovingly had men and women in my life who'd be like, dude, what are you doing? Especially my wife, where is she? The real hero of the story, there she is. Not you, Josh, my wife. <laughs> that God, right, does a work in us. And not only does it sometimes take time to see 
patterns of sinful behavior, but sometimes it also takes time to see patterns of strength and godly behavior. And that God wants us in our objectivity and in our patience to care about our leaders as we hold them accountable and honor them because all of these things matter to God and they matter to the witness of Jesus Christ. And so it's clear that God cares about leadership inside the church. He addresses it three times in this letter. So as we just think practically this week, right, as, we, as we process and, and, and take some time where we're going to respond to God's word, right, I just want to start by saying this. Thank you, for, thank you guys for this. I, I, I feel honored and loved and respected at this church, and I know that most of the other pastors and leaders do as well. I think you guys do a wonderful job of this. So thank you. From the bottom of my heart, as a pastor, right, it, it is a joy to be able to say, I, I, I know a lot of other pastors, guys. And, and to hear other pastors talk about the uh, pastoring and shepherding their church and hearing some of the horror stories that I hear from them about what it's like, I'm like, dude, what are you doing? Come work at my church. We can't pay you, but you'll be happy. Right? Thank you guys for being committed to the gospel, for being committed to Jesus and for loving your pastors and for loving them and, and letting them know that you are thankful for them and the sacrifices they make. Right? It is a joy and an honor to be able to pastor and shepherd at this church. Please, I'll ask you this, please continue to do that for the rest of your life. Whether you're here at Aletheia or you're gonna be here for a few years and then God's gonna call you on to another stage of your life, please, please live this out. Right? Believe it or not, pastors and elders are sinful people desperately in need of God's grace just like you are. And gossiping and complaining about them all the time is not helpful to them. It likely will not make them a better leader, believe it or not. It doesn't mean you don't call them and hold them accountable. We see that clearly you're called to do that. But pastors need encouragement just like you do. So thank you for the way that you do that here and please continue to make that a priority for the rest of your life as you faithfully serve for the next 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50. I don't know, some of you guys, maybe by that point we'll be living past 120 so you got another 100 years left. Faithfully love Jesus, love his church and honor your pastors and elders. And as you do that, hold to God's word. Cling to it as the source of truth in your life and hold your pastors to that standard. And make sure that whatever church you are a part of, whether it's here in Gainesville at Aletheia Church or somewhere else, that that church takes this calling seriously and that they patiently and humbly and objectively install new leaders. Because not only will this create an environment where the church grows together as a family, but more importantly, the witness of our Savior is at stake. And we're called to care about that.